Hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. I'm going to be interviewing powerful people, uh, but that's really easy. So not really the mouthwash way. We're going to be doing things a bit differently in season two and exploring the less obvious elements of power this season. What's driving uh, this world? Uh, what is hard power? What's soft power during a pandemic? Who's got power? who wants it, how you can get it, and a whole lot more besides. Um, it's going to be an amazing season. Yesterday was an absolute blast. Um, we had um, Laura uh, Forsick from uh, the space analyst um, firm, Astrological, Astrological rather, and um, we learned everything that Musk and Bezos are doing and that sort of stuff. So absolutely fascinating um, and riveting sort of stuff there. Um, joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is one of the foremost voice experts in the business, Caroline Goider. Uh, she created the Gravity Before I chat with Caroline, though, a bit more about um, who we are, where we are, and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter, but let's explore it a bit. So everyone should be on the mobile app. You can actually listen now on the desktop, but the top bit is called the Nest. So if you scroll um, above your heads, you can actually see I've put a notice up there um, that says enjoy the lo-fi before we start. That's called the Nest. That's where um, I and any speaker can post tweets like the ones you see there. Mouthwash uses this a bit differently to discuss them in a section um, we lovingly call Desert Island Tweets. Um, You can click through, follow accounts, um, check links and that sort of stuff. It's all pretty handy. Uh, and a very unique feature um, to Twitter spaces. Um, It's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, when I'm in other spaces and that sort of stuff, people use it for lots of different things. So experiment. Uh, You can see all your faces uh, and the speakers are always at the top and the top left. Uh, Spaces allow up to 11 people um, at a time, including the host. Um, So you can have a really good chat with multiple voices. You can request the mic in the bottom left hand um, corner of any app you're in by clicking the mic and uh, then you'll get permission from the host. Mouthwash is a bit more of a show format, so we actually take questions via the hashtag Mouthwash Show. So if you click the top at the top, where the one in blue that says Mouthwash Show, click that, you can ask a question uh, and it saves your uh, fingers some typing. Twitter's also recently uh, introduced a slew of monetization features, so you know they're serious about spaces. If you look at the bottom uh, right hand of your phone screens, you'll see some icons, dots, people's hearts, etc. The dots is where all the settings are. So you can turn on captions, accessibility features if you need those. Uh, just a reminder in case anyone uh, new has entered the space. Um, right. OK, time to do me a huge favour. Share the space out. So if you all look at the mobile um, phone app that you're on, click on the bottom right with the sort of staple with the up arrow and uh, you'll get the world to know, you know, that you're in an amazing space and you should listen to this person. For every person that we entice into the space, a tree is going to be planted courtesy of the amazingly smart cookies at Ecology, who make offsetting carbon footprints super easy. Uh, You can find out more about them over at ecology.com. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Um, Whether it's for personal use or your business, Elliot and the team over there, absolutely fantastic. I've worked with them for years. Thoroughly recommend them. Thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell has recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner, obviously in step with society. Find out how Shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Okay, time to shower Caroline in emojis. Click the heart with a plus and start showering while I introduce Caroline. Don't stop until the end. Are you ready? Hope you found the heart in the bottom of your mobile apps. Ready, steady, go. 
Caroline worked for over a decade at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London as a voice coach before starting her own business and launching the Gravitas Matter to the world via her TED Talk, which now has over 9 million views. Caroline works with CEOs of FTSE 100 senior management within organisations as well as private individuals from actors to journalists to help them overcome the negative effects of stress on their delivery when it matters. Owning the room, authentic presence, inspiring and influencing, it's all covered so individuals who run companies with thousands of people and employees get clear and correct information to move needles around the globe, thanks to Caroline. Author of several Amazon best-selling books, including Gravitas and the recent Find Your Voice, Caroline's recently pushed the Gravitas method online and is helping everyone from sales team to reporters communicate more clearly. An expert in all things voice, we're going to explore how to get a better, how to get ahead uh, better using your voice. Best of all, she's TBD alumni, so thank you all for the shower of emoji. Uh, thanks for joining us, Caroline. As always, how are you doing? First, you're doing all right tonight. My total pleasure, Paul. It's always I love anything that you're involved in. It's always creative and forward thinking. So it's great to be here, and 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 I think. What's interesting about this world that we're in, I think I've probably just evidenced really well, which is that sometimes technology throws us things we hadn't expected. And, and that, you know, that can really affect you as a speaker. And I think that really impacts people when they find their voices. And as someone really scaling a business at the moment, I'm noticing it in myself as well. So that's something that's going to be fun for us to talk about, maybe. Oh, definitely, definitely. All right, uh, we always normally start with, uh, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, I'm trying to rent a house. <laughs> so I think the first thing I thought about when I woke up this morning was that was the house viewings I had to do today, which is not, not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and did you did you manage to do your house viewings? I, know, I think I might have found one touch wood. I may be oh. Saying it on on Twitter Spaces, but fingers crossed, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If getting on a Twitter Space is the hardest thing you got to do today, then that's not a bad day, is it? Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, you're you're scaling the business. How have the last twelve months been for you? I've I'm someone who always I don't really see behind me. I don't really have a rear view mirror. I'm not very good at thinking about the past, and I really love the future. And the future is almost too compelling to me. And and I've found that. The last the last twelve months have just given me a different vista on how my work could reach people, and I'm I've had the fastest learning curve, the steepest digital learning curve probably known to man over the last few months, and it's fascinating <laughs> and also exhausting. But I'm I'm enjoying the exhaustion, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely I remember you when, when I first met you many many moons ago. Um, you were like, I'm not really into digital and that sort of stuff. I'm much more like do it in person and that sort of stuff. And that that really was your world, wasn't it? So I assume a pandemic where you can't go in front of massive crowds and that sort of stuff. But also it gives you a different type of audience, you know, or one you can't necessarily read and that sort of stuff. Um, before I get into sort of asking you specific questions, I want to focus about the office and lots of other bits and bobs. Tell me why did you get or how, why and how you got into voice coaching? What sort of drew you into it? Wow. Well, I mean... Classic, really. I, I had trained as an actor because I, I enjoyed the idea of theatre and becoming someone else and performance. And, and then I realised I wasn't a very good actor. <laughs> so at that point, when you know you're not going to be Judy Dench, which is a rather devastating moment, probably for most actors, you think, well, <laughs> what, what can I do in this world that I love, which is 
not being Judy Dench. And, and of course, the thing that you don't see when you watch a movie or watch a play is that there are loads of really interesting jobs on the set backstage. And one of the really interesting jobs, of course, is voice coaching. So I loved my voice teacher at drama school and she said, go do this voice masters at Central School of Speech and Drama. So I applied and I got in and it was it was the moment where in my life I went, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, which is a really lovely moment. And I do this job that actually I would do for free if I could afford it, because it's just, it's a total pleasure, you know. And so I kind of fell into it, I suppose, by not by not being very good at acting. <laughs> I do like that. Um, right, okay, let's, um, before we go on, let's talk about the books. Um, Gravitas in particular fits really well with a the theme of power. Uh, confidence and influence seems to exude from people with Gravitas. Um, what, tell, tell me a bit about the book and what is Gravitas in 2021? Ooh, okay, so Gravitas, when I wrote it in 2014, was slightly different and I think the tilt now is in 2021 that gravitas is a kind of power that needs to reach across the screen or down a phone line or you know just it has to be able to travel and I also think the thing that is changing so fast right now that we can't even notice it is how global things are becoming and and I think Gravitas has been quite cultural in some ways in that, you know, the, in British culture, it was a certain thing. In American culture, it was a certain thing. And now you've got to be able to reach people globally. You've got to find an impact that is universal. And, and that's really interesting. And, and I'm fascinated by what it's becoming, actually. I think it's going to make it more interesting, more accessible. Mm. Uh, which is a lovely segue. Um, I want to start speaking um about speaking in the office let's talk about zoom specifically i noticed um on the online course um on carolangoida.com um you can talk uh well you talk about the conference calls and that sort of stuff remember when we didn't have to see people's face all the time to communicate i mean pipe dreams but how should people um use their voices differently on a conference call versus say a zoom Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, I, I love I love just pure voice. And I, and when someone says, can we do just a conference call or a mobile phone call as opposed to Zoom? I'm so happy because I think, firstly, on a conference call or on, you know, Clubhouse or Twitter or any of these kind of sound spaces, you want to think like a voiceover artist in the sense of really letting your voice travel and move and express what you're thinking and feeling and when you do, I think it just creates a better experience for listeners. And all that people have to do is so simple, you know, is to stand up when you're speaking and use your hands, because that will naturally free up your vocal expression. There's a lovely phrase in voiceover, which is that gesture orchestrates vocal intonation. So if you've got a conference call, wave your hands around <laughs> in an expressive way and you will sound so much more fun to the people who are listening. Oh, that's a good tip. And is there any similar tip for if you're on a Zoom? Because obviously that may come across slightly differently when you're on a Zoom. Yeah, so on Zoom, well, the thing with Zoom is that your hands are often out of sight. So if you set up your shots so that they can't see your hands, then you, you could probably get away with all sorts of things. One of the tips I give people on Zoom really <laughs> is, is to stand up. And, and most people have a standing desk or most people have an ironing board, right? And if you put your laptop 
onto something slightly higher so that your laptop screen is at head height and the camera is at eye height, then what people find, 99.9% of people I've coached find that that gives them more vocal authority, more power, because you're standing up and your voice can power up more freely. And it also helps people feel more confident. And the thing is that most people won't notice that you're standing if you set it up right. So yeah, on a conference call gesture, on a Zoom call, if you can stand. That is a great a great tip. I certainly have noticed a very dif- a, a big difference when I'm presenting or just even on a conference call when I am on my standing desk. Number one, I want to get out of there a lot quicker. Um, and number two, for me, um, it seems to be a lot more direct communication rather than, you know, because when you're sat in front of a screen, it feels like you're slouching sometimes, regardless of whether you are or you aren't. It feels like you're very close, you know, um, which some people have said feels uncomfortable, but other people have said they actually quite like it because it's a bit more real. But but um, definitely when I've been presenting, standing up has really helped me um, keep on track, vocalise, but also you've just got a better sort of field of vision. So like you say, you can have a lot of fun. I've been using MMHMM, the app with Phil um, Liban, which has absolutely changed the way I present as well. So I thoroughly recommend that. Um, have you used that, by the way? Oh, good tip. Good tip. If I had a pen, I would be writing it down. Can you text it to me later? <laughs> I will do. I will do. I'll send it. They they spoke at the same TBD um, this, this, uh, this year and they were absolutely... Fantastic! A load of the speakers took my, took up my um, what do you call it? My uh, test to them to see if they would use it for it, and they were all blown away by it. So um, yeah, it was it was a fun fun sort of test, and I recommend it to anyone. It really does change the way that you present. Um, speaking of screens, can you explain? I think it was a blog post that you wrote. Um, can you explain what you mean by people talking um, through the screen and not at the screen? Oh yeah, I mean that's that's a really. I mean, that's really a film actor's tip, actually, right? So, you know, when an actor is filming, the, the, the camera is there, but they're kind of projecting beyond the camera to a real person, and particularly TV presenters. I once sat next to Angela Rippon at a dinner, and she said she had this... I, those who are young, Angela Rippon was a news reader in the 80s, possibly some early 90s, and she... She had great presence, actually, and she said, my dad, the first day I had to be a news anchor, said to me, just talk to me, Pep. And she said, I always presented the news to him in his armchair at home. And it's that quality of someone who is speaking on a screen, but they're kind of really talking to a real person who is human and friendly and makes them access all the best parts of themselves as speakers. And it's that ability just to talk to someone real. And then suddenly it becomes a conversation and not this weird, fake presentation. And then I think people really unlock the digital media that we're working with. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of people, it it comes down to a platform that they're using and they sort of feel like it's the same sometimes. But for for me, I've really had to figure out, number one, I have to slow down. That's, I think, something you and I have spoken about many times. <laughs> and number two, um, I have to be more, um, what do you call it, uh, speaking in shorter sentences as well, because I have the tendency to ramble uh, and that sort of thing. But um, I found my Zoom, when I do a Zoom call, I'm in one frame of mind. And when I do it, mm-hmm, I'm in a com- completely another one. And I think that that's a, a really interesting thing that a lot of companies aren't even thinking about when, they, when they're choosing these sort of platforms. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you think about that. Um, 
Right. Let's talk about the sound of our own voices. Um, most people don't like the sound of their own voice, um, but some voices aren't great for certain tasks. How do you know um, if you have a, a good voice, so let's say, and what are the issues um, that can be caused by not having a good voice? Oh, this, this, is, this is where I get on my hobby horse a bit. <laughs> because, so, there's, there's a whole school of, of kind of voice training that happened when we had elocution classes and also when we were taught to sing at school. And there was a kind of sense of, this is a good voice, this is a good accent, you're a good singer, you're not a good singer. And I just would love to, you know, just say to everyone now, that's all bollocks, it's, it's rubbish. We've all got great voices. Everybody can sing. Everybody, you know, it, within certain physical limitations, everybody can sing and everybody can speak. And when we kind of trust our voices and learn to understand how they work and learn to enjoy them, the feeling of them, then we've all got great voices. But the problem is, as you say, that we're taught you can't speak well, you can't sing. And so then we start to be our own inner critic. It's the kind of imposter syndrome piece. And we start to judge ourselves. And and as we walk into a meeting room or log into a call, we say, you're not going to be any good. You're going to speak too fast. They're not going to listen to you. Your voice is boring. You don't sound credible. You know, and all of that stuff that we say to ourselves and all of that stuff that we judge ourselves with, do you know what? It's a total waste of time because it cuts you off from being present and being with your audience. So I'm kind of being I'm quite a hippie on this in a way. I just would love for people to start to enjoy the physicality of their voices and give a damn what anybody else thinks about them, because you know what? Then they free up. I couldn't agree more with that. I, I, I hear imposter syndrome all the time. And I say, who, who has told you that that's the case or who's letting you feel like that? That's a down to you. And sometimes you just have to hear yourself, I think, personally. I, I don't have a great... Personally, I don't feel like I have a great voice, um, but it's something I've learned to live with and sort of, you know, play on in some some respects and that sort of stuff. But I think it's about knowing your content, practice, but also, as I hope we're going to talk about later, phys- like you say, the physicality of how you stand, how you're sitting and that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's... Um, it's one thing I, I think everyone's going to battle with. I, I don't know if there's any good tips to sort of get rid of imposter syndrome, but um, I definitely think having a good voice or have, feeling like you have a good voice or at least an okay voice is something that we all need sort of help with. And, and it's a really good question, that tip that helps people. And, and something I've noticed recently that helps people overcome imposter syndrome is to know that you can switch off the voice in your head that is saying mean things to you just by switching into the body and the peripheral nervous system. So simple things like, you know, just really being conscious of the air on your face or the clothes on your skin, being conscious of how the in-breath is where you pause, the out-breath is where you speak, that your voice comes from your lungs, it's not in your throat. All of those things are just being really present to the body, the way you are maybe when you run or dance or play tennis then the imposter syndrome in your head has to quieten down because it can't speak up when you're present to your body. I mean, if everybody right now just tries that, if everybody just feels their feet on the floor and their feet in their shoes and the air on their faces and your clothes on your skin, and if you really just pay attention to that, the mean voice in your head has to go quiet. 
because you filled your attention system with something else. And so imposter syndrome is always a choice, you know, radical thought maybe, but we can switch it off and just come back to the body. I I hundred uh, I 100% agree with that it's a choice. A hundred percent agree. I think um, when when I look at lists of fears of people, you know, I, I like to sort of look at those weird lists and that sort of thing, see how they're changing geographically, how they differ, and that sort of thing. Um, presenting and public speaking is always listed at the top. Um, why do you, why do you think that is? And and how can people push it down the list or even scrub it off? Is it is it just looking at where we are and like how we're breathing and the clothes that we've got on, or or is it more fundamental? Do we need to be told it by more people? How, how do you think we fix that? Wow. Well, I mean, I think so. The first thing is that speaking is a highly visible act and it's we are very vulnerable to criticism and we're vulnerable to judgment. And so I don't think it's surprising that people feel very vulnerable when they speak in public. But I feel it's a bit like going for a, you know, rally drive or go, you're doing a Formula One race or something and not knowing how your car works. Right. And then it breaking down and you have absolutely no clue how to fix the engine because you've never seen inside one. I feel like, you know, when people come to me and they're frightened of public speaking, there will be loads of good reasons why that fear is there, probably from when they were 12 at school and someone laughed at them when they did a presentation. And so you can revisit those fears and help someone unpick where they started and help them unpick the truths of those fears and you can also help someone really understand the engine and understand that, you know, when you're standing on stage in front of people, if you know how your voice works, if you know that every pause is a moment to center yourself, that if you trip over your words, you can articulate better by using your tongue differently. If you notice that your voice is flat, you can engage more range in lots of different ways. If you kind of have control of the machinery, and I don't really like that metaphor, but the instrument of the voice, then I think you don't need to feel frightened anymore because you're in control. And it's being out of control visibly that is the really frightening thing for people. And I'm not surprised, right? But it doesn't need to be like that. It really doesn't, I promise. Yeah. It's, it's the looking silly in front of either peers or friends that you're not 100% sort of comfortable looking like that. It's always that psychological driver, I find, of people who either have imposter syndrome or perhaps um, don't present confidently enough because they haven't figured out you know who they are when they're presenting and like you say if you are if you if you've been told you're bad before or not been given positive reinforcement which is something kim scott and i spoke about last season in mouthwash that can then become um a self-fulfilling prophecy so i i urge everyone who's listened to this listen well to people when they're presenting and also give them feedback afterwards not just like oh that was great tell them something specific that they did well and that's much better than just say oh that's great that's that's came from kim scott so definitely um listen to that podcast as well it's going up soon um you and i have talked about derailers a lot um and i think now more than ever people tell me that colleagues are losing their temper uh people are fatigued they're lost interest um how can we keep calls on tracks and deal with derailers perhaps start with what a derailer is Oh, I mean, de well, derailers are anything that take you off track, aren't they? And they're often, I think they are often because people are wanting to showboat. They're wanting to, you know, show off in front of each other. They're wanting to distract. They're feeling uncertain. There's, you know, all sorts of undercurrents in meetings, aren't there? 
and and I, and I you know you know what I think the really big problem is for online meetings in particular is they're too long and I, and I oh, think God, yeah. the first thing I would say to anybody who's hosting meetings is make them shorter and really also know that what you do before the meeting is almost as important as what happens in the meeting in terms of give people creative space to think about what you're going to talk about before they get onto the call. Tell them what you're going to be exploring. Tell them what you need from them. Tell them what's exciting about what you're going to be doing and give them space to mull on it. And then when you get on the call, really lay down the values, the ground rules that you expect from people and be really gently firm about keeping people to those rules. Because I think where there isn't leadership on a call like that, it can really spin out of control. And the worst thing is where only one or two people speak and there are 10 other people on the call and, and they're silent. And I think if you've got five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people on a call who aren't speaking, don't make them come next time. If they're going to be there, give everybody a space to speak for about two to three minutes. And if you're not going to have them speak, record it, share it on your favorite platform, but don't expect them to sit through your meeting. That's harsh, but I, that's what I really think. <laughs> no, I think so. It comes from the sort of like accountability or um, everyone must know everything syndrome that a lot of businesses have. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing it more and more. And I think that's why also people are just fatigued and sort of knacked off with things because, you know, they're expected to do X, Y and Z, but actually they don't need to do a lot of it for their job. And so you can see why frustrations, I think, sort of come out. Um, I've certainly heard a lot of HR managers going, I've never had so many complaints over things that would never be complaints at other times. It's just literally because of the, the way that things are said through technology or handled. Um, but yeah, it, it's a really interesting one. Going to the other end of that spectrum, let's talk about toxic workers for a sec. Um, how can you use your voice um, to work better with workers who aren't, say, perfect co-workers? Oh, gosh. Well, so, I mean, I, I go back in a way to what you've just said, because I think that email or any written medium, you know, whether it's on Slack or email, I think that's often where toxicity is bred, because there's so much subtext that it, you can infuse into a line on Slack or a line on email or a line of text. You know, someone can say, the project's not completed yet. Can you send it to me? And they could be saying in their mind's ear, the project's not completed yet. Could you send it to me? But you read it because you've had a bad day as the project's not completed yet. Could you send it to me? And that's just a product of where you're at. But that kind of... Um, ability to interpret messages is much easier in the voice so the first thing I would say is if you've got a toxic colleague don't communicate with them purely through writing because you will be making up a story about what they're thinking that might not be true if you can get onto a phone call with them I'm back to loving audio because sometimes just listening to someone can be much easier than having to face off on zoom and I think finally, with you know anybody who feels toxic, tune into what they're fearing and tune into what they're valuing. Because if you really understand what someone's fearing, they're not so toxic anymore. They're just frightened. And if you understand what someone's valuing, even if it's totally different to you, you can shift them because our values move us forward. And I, 
I kind of go back to what the actor David Thewlis said to me when I wrote my first book, Star Qualities, and he said, as an actor, you end up understanding that everybody has a motivation, that everybody has their reasons. And he said there was only one character he played in the whole time of acting, and that was the commandant in The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And he said, I couldn't get his motives, this commandant of Auschwitz. But every other character I've played, good or bad, I've understood where they came from. And I think with toxic colleagues, what are they fearing? Because if you work that out, they change. I, I agree with that. No, no end. I, I think people, we're, we're forced to be polarised, aren't we, at the moment? It's them and us, mask wearers, non-mask wearers, vax, anti-vax, you know, and that's the thing, have, have nots, rich, poor. And I just think we need to start not always looking in the middle, but looking at where other people are coming from a little bit more. And all these technologies are, interestingly enough, trying to help us in different ways. So Twitter um, is talking about bad language and they make recommendations. Are you sure you want to tweet this? Um, Grammarly, for example, is helping you use different words that may be offensive in some cultures and that sort of stuff. So they're all trying to sort of help us be a little bit better. But I think it sort of almost needs a sort of step back, almost sometimes from a workplace level to be like, this is our culture, not like we play ping pong, but actually we don't scream at people via Slack. You know, I've, I haven't heard of anyone really um, train anyone in communicating at, at companies. I think um, I've seen one document which was how to write good emails and it was, it was I would say, passable. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an interesting area where I think if somebody, fi- somebody figures out a course or something, it would definitely, uh, definitely be of, of use to people. Um, let's talk a bit about money, um, that tiny thing that everyone's a bit worried about. Um, have there been any studies into what bad diction and sort of vocabulary has on people's careers and prospects? Um, for example, I know accent bias is a real thing that causes people money. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is huge and polarised. And I so there, there have been studies done that show that accent has an impact on our career success and there is there have been some some recent ones here's okay so here hand on hip here's what i think about this what matters is not accent or or even dialect although you do want to make sure that you are understood so accent is the sound of your speech and dialect is the words that you use and I always think about Billy Connolly, for for example. You know, he's he's Glaswegian. He's not trying to be anything else. He hasn't tried to become, you know, RP. He doesn't need to sound like Prince Charles, heightened RP. He is Billy Connolly. That's his accent. But he's completely clear to an American audience. And And I would urge people who are worrying about their accents and how it will affect their career prospects to... Hold on to who you are, because accent is a product of who you are. And just make sure that you use your articulators, the tongue, your lips to shape the sound clearly. And then you can be understood anywhere. And don't worry if, say, people tell you that a Brummy accent is going to impact your career, because I bet you can find some examples of Brummies who soared in their careers. And, and I would hate for people to feel that they had to cover up where they come from in order to fit in that makes me feel really sad but just be clear speak clearly yeah no i I think that's um 
I think you sent me a PDF of um, an accent study and I, I was floored by some of the numbers in there of just people who are, you know, you're just denied money because people have these unconscious biases and that sort of stuff. But it did get me thinking. Um, and when I was researching uh, for today's show, um, it reminded me of the Theranos um, case, Elizabeth Holmes, where she purposefully um, deepened her voice to appear more masculine so that she would get investor money and trust and sort of project different attributes to staff um thatcher also used to do uh that that sort of trick and dropped her voice by about 60 hertz i think it was um what do you think this is going to be a controversial question what do you think about this strategy should more women be deepening their voices or is there something larger at play here well it is it's larger at play actually because there are studies done on male political speakers in the u.s and this works for men as well so there's, it's the factor of dominance, basically, in in how we show up as human beings. That when I, you know, if we're in fight or flight, if we're panicking, our breath is higher, and so our voices become higher and lighter. And when we're in our power, very much the theme of what we're talking about, we stand strong. Our bodies are open. Our breath is released. And so our voices naturally have a lower power. Now, that doesn't mean you have to push them down to sound like kind of Barry White, because that is just that feels forced in a way. But I think if you need to express power, make your physicality feel strong and centered and your voice will naturally center itself. But don't I don't like the Therano study because it is quite murky, isn't it? I suspect there were lots of other factors at play and her voice was a small part of it, you know, if she'd just shown up with a deep voice, I think that wouldn't have done it. I think her, she was influencing people on all sorts of subtle levels. Thatcher, I think possibly you could argue that that vocal piece was probably the thing that in the context of the 70s shifted her power because she had to fill the House of Commons, which is a kind of theatrical chamber. And... I suspect that working with teachers who could teach her how to project properly and own a space made a huge difference. So, yes, access the power of your voice. Don't force it. Don't push it. Just find your own easy power and then people will take you more seriously, male, female, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are. Okay, um, let's talk about um, let's talk about the big one. Um, how can or should people be using their voices to get a promotion or a raise in twenty twenty one? Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? I I kind of go back to the holistic piece around this. Your your voice is an expression of your aliveness, and. The people who are going to ace the next decade, to my mind, are people who can handle complexity and handle ambiguity and hang and handle volatility. And so if you are present to your own vocal mechanism, you understand how your voice works, you understand your breathing, you you are you stand well, you listen well, you speak well then you will show up as someone who is really conscious and present and aware. And I figure that in a highly technological age where people are distracted and they sit badly and they breathe in the upper chest and then they're distracted so they're not listening, if you show up as the person who is different to that, 
I reckon you'll start to get the raises. So in a way, the paradox of this modern world is that all the advice that I've just said is what Cicero was talking about. And and it hasn't changed much. And in fact, I think that old rhetorical advice is even more present and important now because our technology is is so damaging to our presence and our focus, much as I love it. <laughs> Definitely. All right, let, let's go back up high for a bit. Um, that's the manuals, male-only panels, still tragically happening. I'm seeing them, um, you know, a bit of a resurgence recently. <laughs> um, a lot of the time, I think people tell me that they don't speak on panels because they lack confidence, they dislike public speaking, or they just don't feel they are worthy. I know we talked about... Um, imposter syndrome uh, earlier any advice for people who feel like this i'm very much of the school of thought that you should completely just agree to speak at everything because you you've been asked for a reason and also visibility and it's good practice but i know that not everyone you know they don't feel like that how how do um you know we, we change these sorts of things how do how do we help people figure out which which one's most important to them and how do we how do we fix that yeah, firstly, I'm with you. I think just say yes. <laughs> if someone has the grace to ask you, just say yes. And if it feels scary, then to something you you talked about earlier, Paul, ask for help. So like when I did that TEDx, I was utterly, utterly terrified. But I got some really good support and it just got me there. So if you were asked to speak on a panel... And you might be the only person, you know, who is happens not to be a man or happens not to be any other, you know, part of the world that speaks on panels a lot. Then just do it. Practice. Set yourself up properly and really trust yourself. And there's a piece of Michelle Obama advice, which is she says, you know, I've sat in all sorts of rooms. I've sat on boards. I've, you know been the first lady of the United States and she said and I would sit there thinking I don't deserve to be here and and she said I realized that other people were thinking that too and the worst thing was that there were people who really didn't deserve to be there who thought they did because everybody had always told them that it was their right to be there and she said that's not right and I I think there's something for anybody who doubts themselves if you can show up and make that mantle less of a mantle then you're going to start bit by bit changing the world. And all you have to do is give yourself a little bit of the belief that some of those other characters who have been told they deserve to be there for the last 50 years of their life have got. Because maybe they don't deserve to be there any more than you do. Maybe you just have to tell yourself that you deserve to be there. And maybe that will start to change things. Because I'm also seeing it in organisations that there are, there are lots of manals that top level in lots of big corporates at the moment and that also infuriates me yeah I, I couldn't agree and i'm starting to see real problems with that leadership as well because number one they're feeling attacked they're very aware there, there are very few men i find aren't aware that they're a man you know and that people are looking at them and that sort of stuff the media is definitely giving them very clear signals of like you can't do this you can't do that you should be doing this you should be doing that and that you know, they're they're often looking for direction and for people to sort of step up. You know, the CEO of all of the companies that I've ever worked with, I think, have always said, I want my people to be more X, Y and Z. And it's not less, you know, come to me less and that sort of stuff. It's always like they're looking for that guidance and sort of figuring out how to sort of be better. They can't do everything. So I definitely uh, agree with you on that point. Uh, keep speaking up and, you know, taking those slots when they come up. 
Um, well, yeah, I know we're interesting on time, but I want to talk about anxiety because I keep hearing that word um, pushed out to people and it means a lot of different things to different people. Um, I think a lot of people um, feel that things are happening to them and that sort of stuff. And sometimes they need to uh, calm down quickly um, or they're taking themselves away and that sort of stuff. What's the best advice when people feel anxious and maybe they need to get on a call in the next five minutes? Oh, there's there's a, a piece of advice that I have been using a lot recently, which is so simple and it's just so effective. And it's basically, if you lengthen your out-breath, it slows your heart rate and it gives you lovely heart rate variability. And, you know, in moments where I've tested this, things like when you can't sleep, if you just lie in bed or sit up in a chair and just think I'm going to breathe in for four, out for four, in for four, out for six, in for four, out for eight, in for four, out for ten. It's amazing how quickly your system calms because the out breath slows the heart rate and the in breath raises the heart rate. So simply by lengthening your out breath, you are slowing your heart rate and that has an impact on how you feel. It has an impact on your voice. It has an impact on how you listen to others, on how much you smile, because it's it's affecting your vagal tone. And, and when we have good vagal regulation, we just feel that all's right with the world. And the other, the other way to do this really quickly, which might not work in an open plan office, is to sing. Because singing is, of course, a long out breath. And it also really lifts your spirits. And you don't even have to be tuneful. But I know what you're going to say, which is that I, I'm sitting in a meeting and I can't lengthen my out breath and I can't sing. So then I would say to people, just follow the out breath all the way. Watch it go out of your body, feel it go out and then just sit and wait for the reflex of the breath in because breath is a reflex. And if you breathe out and just wait for the breath in and let it come through the nose in its own time, you start to calm down really quickly because it's taking you off the body's fight or flight response. So in a nutshell, lengthen the out breath. If you can sing, sing. If you can't, just breathe out, close mouth, wait for the in-breath to come in its own time. And all of those things will center you so quickly if you do them. Oh my God, I'm going to be doing those. Uh, and I think I need to turn that into an image that I can put on my profile as well. Um, final question, any advice, before Desert Island tweets, any advice to people when they're in audio spaces like Twitter spaces, the one we're in now? Um, should we change our voices? Should we put them through modulation? Should we just breathe slower? What would be your best advice for people who are doing sort of audio shows or, um, you know, just firing up a space and wanting to chat about the latest film they saw? I think I kind of, I would give a, a, a replay of some of the advice in the sense that if you can use your hands and smile and stand or move in a very natural conversational way, that's going to help your voice. If you can warm your voice up before, you know, by singing, by humming, that's going to really help your voice. And And I would just say, find lightness because... I mean, I do this too. We get really serious when we are asked to perform or present in inverted commas. And I think, you know, when you look at great performers, the quality that makes them great is their lightness. And I, I don't always take this advice very well myself, but I think the more we find a sense of ease and lightness, 
the better we show up in these very one-to-one, very conversational digital mediums. So be light. That's it, really. Okay, that's a good one. All right. Um, It is time for Desert Island Tweets, the part of Mouthwash where we pick a tweet or two that has changed the guest's mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you please turn your attention to the nest, so pick up your um, phones if you've popped them down. Um, Caroline, tell us why you picked this tweet and uh, what it's all about. Oh, you have to remind me what the tweet is. Oh, you can't see it. Okay, sorry. It's Alex and Books, that one. Yes. Um, Just sorry, I'm learning Twitter spaces. That's all right. So if you pull down all of the icons at the top, you'll be able to see Alex and Books. You'll have to read it out. That's all right. So it's um, a picture of a book and it's a highlighted section. And it says, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need, Cicero. Cicero, yes, <laughs> because I'm an introvert, right? And that is my heaven. <laughs> that's that's it for me. If I have a garden and some books, I've it's I'm there. So that one's really really simple. They're both tweets I've seen quite recently, and they just made me happy. Okay, I like that one. All right, and then the second one is the Rob Doob um, one that I'm going to put up ever so uh, seamlessly now. <laughs> So that one was the picture of um, them all holding up their certificates in education, that one. Oh, you have to remind me what that one says as well. That's all right. This wise woman said to me, your education is ruining our education. You must teach them how to be, not how to appear to be. Pawan Gupta, founder of SDIH. S-I-D-H. One as well. So that, I saw that one recently and and that's it. I mean, that's it for me. That's it in terms of how we show up on Twitter spaces and how we show up in meetings, just we have to learn how to be and not appear to be because when we're appearing to be, so much hard work. It really is, isn't it? It's that fake, if you're putting on a persona, it's more energy that you're expending on that than focusing on what you're speaking about, I think. Like I'm, I've demonstrated today, not a perfect interviewer and that sort of thing, lots to learn. But I do lean into sort of having fun on Twitter spaces. And I think that, that when I saw this quote, I just was like, do you know what, that's really interesting. And I think, but also, it's also the, the bit that really I like, you must teach them how to be. So it's not necessarily giving people rules and regulations, but setting those cultural norms that people, or resetting cultural norms even, for example, when people are going back to the office, you know, we, we used to do this, but we're not going to do that anymore because it was a bad thing and, it, you know, we can do better and that sort of stuff. So I definitely um, saw this tweet and I really, I really liked it. Um, any final thoughts um, before we shut off for this evening? I, I mean, I think that last um, tweet, really, that for me, that is voice, is really learning how to be in your voice and enjoy the power of it. And, and enjoy how it feels in your body, enjoy how your breath feels, enjoy the sound of it, enjoy it even when it's a bit out of tune because it doesn't mind a bum note. And then, and then we let go of having to kind of sound a certain way or appear to be a certain thing. And I think, you know, life is really short to be a bit cod philosophical. And voice is breath and breath is expression. And if you enjoy your voice, you enjoy being alive and that to me is kind of important. So that's, I'll leave it with that. <laughs> no, that's, I think, I think that's a great sentiment to, uh, to leave the chat today on. Um, thank you so much for being part of Mouthwash, um, Caroline. Um, I really appreciate your, uh, your feedback and your time. Um, 
and input as well. Uh, that was season two, uh, sorry, episode two of season two. Um, thank you all for listening. Apologize for the uh, technical things at the beginning. Uh, let me know, apart from that, how we did. Uh, use the hashtag mouthwash show. Would love to hear your thoughts. Any way that we can improve and all of that sort of stuff as well. I am absolutely thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two as well as Caroline. Um, I've curated a bevy uh, from Bloomberg's Bradstone to Beauty Stack Charmadine Reed. We've got the inventor of the hashtag up tomorrow. And we also have a Kung Fu master as well as an uncertainty expert which caroline referenced earlier um we'll continue to explore power and the forces that surround it every weeknight here only on twitter spaces some you'd expect and a lot you won't i hope you like the choices um check out the website mouthwashshow.com for full details downloadable calendars and links to previous episodes which are now a podcast on spotify apple music and where good platforms are usually free uh, podcasts are usually free. Uh, once again, my thanks to the phenomenal Caroline Goida. If you can work with her, she's amazing. Uh, please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji uh, for everyone in the space as well as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you all for joining. And thanks again to the beautiful people over at Ecology for planting a tree for every single one of you in this space and over the season uh, two. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter spaces. So off you pop, brush your teeth and make sure you start and finish your day with plenty of mouthwash. Thanks again, Caroline. I'll see you all tomorrow at eight with the inventor of the hashtag. Thank you.